Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 215 and this episode is with two coaches from Football Australia. First up, Head of Sports Science, Jack Sharkey and also under 20 sports scientist, Georgia Brown. Now, before we get into the topics and before we get into the episode, what I will say on this one is pause this episode now and give it a share with anyone that is working, one in women's football, um, but also anyone that's either working in international football or have players that go on international duty as well, because there's loads of great information in this one. So give it a share now, send it out to different people, try and do at least three different coaches, I really would appreciate it. Right, now that you've done that, the topics for today, we get into loads of different topics, we talk about Jack's Uh, covers some of the contrast from club to country we talk about some considerations when working with female players we also discuss georgia's research around the menstrual cycle and also the how the effects of menstrual health on performance we talk about what is meant by menstrual health and also georgia also discusses the research and what research is out there on menstrual health and the link to performance as well they also both discussed the approach to what Football Australia are taking and the exciting work that both Georgia and Jack and the rest of the team are doing around this topic as well. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough already, we also discussed the build-up to the 2023 World Cup, which is obviously going to be Australia a co-host. So there's the build-up to that now as well. So absolutely loads jammed into this episode. So I hope you enjoyed the episode with Jack and Georgia. At the start, we also go into a little bit on backgrounds like we always do on the podcast. What I said on this one is Georgia gave a full background on herself because she hadn't been on the podcast before, whereas Jack had. So if you've not listened to the episode, the previous episode with Jack, that was back on episode 82. He was in a different role then, but he goes through his full background, so make sure you go and check out that episode as well. Just before we get into it, I want to say a huge thank you to our sponsors. First of all, Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro have developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to support athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-to-one physio or rehab Hydro allows teams to use a safe and, effect, and, and safe and scalable sports BFR device post-exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. Whether in the change room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hydro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely and more conveniently than ever before. So make sure you go and check them out. Their website is hytro.com, H-Y-T-R-O.com. Or you can email Warren, that's Warren Bradley, who's previously been on the podcast, on warren at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And make sure to go and give them a follow over on social media as well. It's great to see all the clubs, not just in football as well, right across the sporting world that are investing in the Hytro products and getting the players involved in some of the recovery strategies going on that Hytro have created. So brilliant work going on over at Hytro. Also, a massive thank you to Rezl, again, doing some brilliant work. Go and check them out on social media, at Rezl, R-E-Z-Z-I-L, incredible work around VR 
So big thanks to them and let's get into episode 215 of the podcast with Jack Sharkey and Georgia Brown. Rezzle is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezzle, Rezzle. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. Harder, stronger, smarter. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 215. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today two coaches, two guests, two sports scientists from Football Australia, Jack Sharkey. So welcome back, Jack. And also Georgia Brown. Georgia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for both giving up your time. Um, Jack for staying up a bit later and Georgia for getting up early. Um, <laughs> But it's great to have you both on. I know we've got loads of cool stuff to get into. Um, and like I always start these podcasts on a bit of background of yourselves. I just said before we started recording, Jack, you were on the podcast. That was episode 82. I think Jesus. it was in lockdown, that, wasn't it? Yeah, I was in a different house at that point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was like May 2020 or something like that. So... Just to kick us off, Jack, from that point, people can go and they can listen to that and get the full background on yourself. But do you want to give us a bit of an update on the move into the current role? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so obviously a long, a long, <laughs> longish career. It seems to be getting longer in uh, football. Um, but recently, or say recently, about 12 months ago, I started this position with uh, Football Australia. Um, so obviously I, I moved on from Aston Villa when Stephen Gerrard came in. And um, I was approached by Football Australia if I wanted to take a position with, with the Australian women's national team. And a week later, I was in Dubai preparing for the Asian Cup. So it's, uh, yeah, it came a bit out of the blue. Um, but since then, it's been a fantastic 12-month period with this team um, and seeing it progress during that time and a lot of travelling. I think I figured out the other day I've done 45 flights in the last, in the last 12 months. So it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of um, waiting around in airports. But no, it's... Uh, yeah, a completely different environment to what I've been typically used to in clubland in the UK, um, but a, a fantastic uh, and great opportunity to be involved in. Brilliant. And Georgia, you're working, is, I'm right in saying, under 20 sports scientists at the moment? Yeah, correct, under 20. So team just below what uh, Sharky's working with. Awesome. And what's led up to that role for yourself, Georgia? What's the, what's the background for yourself? Yeah, uh, I grew up in a bit of football fanatic family, my whole family always played football or coach football or refereed football. So kind of always had a love of football from there. And then at university, I went to the University of Sydney. I did a Bachelor of Applied Science, Sports Science there. and did a few internships whilst I was there at Huddle and Sports Code, which are performance analyst companies. And then did one actually with Football Australia as well, um, doing some analysis, um, Sports Code sort of stuff. Um, when I finished there, I took a break. Um, and went and travelled for a little bit, um, but kept working for a little while as well. I actually got offered a job um, at the place where we had to do 120 hours of placement with our undergrad degree, and then did it at a running place. Got hired there, worked with youth and adult athletes, and they did um, sprint events, but also they did marathons. So 
that was kind of a cool different job to try um, and I guess gave me some experience in exercise prescription and coaching both adolescents and adults uh, and then once I had had my fun traveling I came back and I did honours which I'm not sure if they have it in the UK but it's pretty much um, a bridging course between doing your undergraduate and your PhD so it's one year of research uh, where I worked at one of our elite academies here Sydney FC Youth Academy I interned and did my research with them on sleep physical activity and well-being so a year of research another year of interning still working at the running coach in place um, and kind of the academy was things like you know, your warm-ups um, cool downs a lot of exercise based rehab in the gym uh, and then a bunch of physical testing so that was a bit of a good introduction to sports science work that I do now um, following that I took a year off I didn't want to do a PhD I was kind of against the idea of it and I went to the New South Wales Institute of Sport and I did an exercise physiology internship there with their swim team so a bit out of the blue um, but that was really cool it was really science based everyone at uh, the institute they're very specific jobs so you have a biomechanist you have a exercise physiologist you have a nutritionist not quite like at Football Australia where you're a bit of everything. Um, so that was really cool, except for COVID hit during that year, which sucked. Um, so I kind of got to work the front half of the year, the back half of the year with that swim team. Um, they were all preparing for the Olympics. Um, and then I got offered a PhD with that swim team and with the Institute of Sport, uh, which I was tossing up. And then someone at the university <clears throat> Technology Sydney came back to me and said, oh, we've actually got this PhD with Football Australia that we'd like you to do. So I tossed that up and with that was a role with the under-17s women's national team. Ended up going with that. COVID hit again, so I didn't get to do much work with the under-17s. And then this year started working with the under-20s and doing uh, sports science work with the under-20s, but then also doing a PhD at University of Technology Sydney, uh, looking at the effects of the menstrual cycle on football performance and recovery, and then also football players' menstrual health. Brilliant. Where did you go travelling when you're from Australia? Uh, shall uh, I went <laughs> I went to Europe. <laughs> I went to Europe for three months. Oh, you got the other thing. Yeah, <laughs> I get out of Australia um, and then spend time in the UK and then all around Europe. Brilliant. The lovely weather over there, get away from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Jack, back to you, mate. This transition from um, the club role, the day-to-day -day sort of being around the players to to the international um, the international stage, obviously the tournaments with the, the World Cup, which I'm sure we're going to touch on coming up. Yep. How's that been for you, that transition? Yeah, it's, it's been an enjoyable one. Obviously, I've, I've spent the majority of my career in club football, um, travelling the breadth of the country to all these far-field stadiums, playing games and coming back at like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and just being immersed in that environment for the best part of a decade. So you do come accustomed to it. Um, but it's actually refreshing to have that transition into a national team environment because it does present a different way of looking at the sport. Um, it's a great opportunity to connect with other practitioners at different clubs because um, obviously as part of our role, we constantly check in on our squad and seeing how they're getting on at Clubland because that's where they spend the majority of their development, the majority of their season. Um, but with that, it allows you to to connect with those staff, see what they're doing, not just in the UK, but all across the world. So it's a fantastic opportunity to 
to see what different people are doing. It actually gives you a few ideas as well when you when you see it firsthand. Um, so with the, with the senior team, for, for example, we've got uh, a good chunk of players in England. We've got a good chunk in Sweden. We've got players in France. We have players in the US. We have players in Australia. So there's a lot of different places in the world where you get to see how they're doing things behind the scenes. Um, obviously, the majority of the hands-on work comes in your camp environment. So you'll have your your 10-day camp. Um, where it's very full on you know, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you, you're just working nonstop. Um, and with that, there's a hell of a lot of logistical issues as well. Um, because with Football Australia, there's no official base at the moment. We're currently developing the home of the Matildas over in Australia. Um, but at the moment, there's no official base. It's not like we have a St. George's Park where we can we can train and set up. So logistically, that's a big effort going to these different cities and different places in the world, taking all your gear, setting up, finding a suitable place to, to train and, 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 and a gym to use as well. So things you don't even think about in the club land where you, you're, you're almost uh, unappreciative of, of what you actually have to freight around. Um, and a lot of it is, is, is planning in between the camps as well. Um, selfishly, I used to think when I was in club land, what do you do when you're in a national team? You have so much time on your hands. And I'd look at it and think, you lucky sod. you got so much time. But in reality, it's full on. <laughs> like you just don't stop. Um, because obviously, it depends in which environment the players are at will influence your responsibility with that player. So, for instance, a lot of players in England, um, they have a good team, a good network of practitioners and backroom staff around them. They have good training facilities and they're pretty much taken care of from the club environment. But then you've got players in other environments where you, I've still got to actively do their S&C programme. Um, or give them advice of what they should be doing on the field. So it, it's quite varied. Um, and it's a reflection of where the women's game is at the moment as well. Um, it's come on leaps and bounds in the last last decade, or well, 15, 10, 15 years. Um, but that's not everywhere. There's still places where they don't necessarily have great support. Some teams don't have uh, GPS, for instance. So it's getting there. It's certainly going in the right direction, but there's certainly areas where, or certain places where it's still to catch up. Um, but no, I'm, I'm loving it. Honestly, it's such a good environment. It's such a good group. Um, it's a good reflection of what's going on in Australia at the moment as well, because like you've met Georgia, she, like, they've got fantastic practitioners, um, fantastic facilities, and it's really refreshing to see, see a, a place where they're doing things right, they're doing things properly. Brilliant. And just you said about the importance of that relationship between like yourselves now being on the international side and clubs. Yeah. Was there anything that you took forward from your time at club in club football when your players were going um, onto international duty? Yeah. Like, is there anything that you carried forward into that now? Any lessons from that? Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. So one thing we want to try and pride ourselves on as a national team is our relationship with the clubs. Because like I said, that's where they spend the most of the time. And if you don't have any relationship with the clubs, how are you going to influence anything? Um, we have standards and benchmarks uh, physically where we want players to be. Um, but there's only so much influence we can have to actually for them to attain those levels if we don't have good communication relationship with the clubs. Um, and that's something we're, we're really good at. We're, we're very open with the clubs that we work, work with. Uh, we're happy to work collaboratively with, with, the, with the club as well because at the end of the day, we both want the same thing. Um, but part of that is that relationship has come from my experience in club because I know what it's like when you're coming up to an international window, 
and say you're at a team where you've got a number of internationals, you get bombarded. All of a sudden, you haven't heard from for ages, you get bombarded with emails saying, I want this, 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 this. I want it in this format, that format. And you're like, come on. <laughs> I've got my other job to do anyway. I've got, I've got a, a squad of, uh, I need to take care of. I've got a game coming up at the weekend. Um, and realistically, when you're in an international break, when you're in the club, you're coming up to a few days off. So you, the last thing you want to do is, after that game, send loads of emails out. So mm. I'm we try not to to overimpose on the teams when we're requesting information. We want to try and simplify that that exchange of information as much as possible, um, and just not overburden them. Because, like I said, I know what it's like on the other side. So, we want to try and make it as easy as possible for for those clubs with the sharing of information and data. Um, but so far, Touchwood is going all right. <laughs> Good, good, good. George, I'll open this up to you, but I think it's a good one for both of you in terms of what are some key considerations when you're working with women play- um, female players? Yeah, um, for my perspective, at least because I work with the youth team, um, often known that they come in with a much lower um, strength and conditioning gym experience or no experience, some of the players that come in. Um, and as Sharky said, some of the girls, they come into camp, and then they go straight back to the clubs and the clubs that I'm working with, they often don't have strength and conditioning coaches or sports scientists. They just go back to a coach. So a huge thing is whilst I have them for that two weeks, trying to teach them a bit of simple gym work even and safe gym work. But it's really tricky having, you know, a squad of say 25 that comes in. Um, five of them might have a great gym program. Another 10, they go to the gym, but they don't have a program. And then another 10 may have absolutely no gym experience. So between the under 17s and 20s teams, I guess it's a bit different to the senior team, uh, but the gym background is definitely a big one. And there's some research that's out even based in academies that a boy's side will do two to three gym sessions a week and a girl's side will often do one or no session a week. So gym background is a big one. Um, and then I feel that, you know, I worked at the Sydney FC Youth Academy, which was a male side and now working with the female side. Females definitely want to know the why a lot more than the guys do. At least the guys that I've worked with, um, the girls always want to know why, why, why. So I love that. Um, I find that part of my role is giving the education to the players and helping them understand why we do what we do. And, and Jack's really big on that as well. So making sure that they're coming through the youth system, understanding the why behind everything. So as simple as why do we do strength training? Um, and I think that once they have that understanding, they're more likely to then continue doing what you're asking them to do back in their club land. Once you, you know you see them for two weeks, you don't see them for two or three months. So um, each camp, I try to provide at least one bit of education. Um, we do have also uh, education modules that we give the girls online that they can access. And then we have online uh, education, usually before tournaments, if there's something that we need to touch up on before they come in. But Education is a huge piece and always being ready to have an answer behind, which I think is important anyway. You always want to have an answer behind what you're doing, not just putting something in place because someone's told you to do it. So always getting ready for someone to come up and ask you that. Why? Uh, And then the other thing, working with females, um, particularly in the youth side, we work really closely with nutritionists uh, and just being aware of that um, body image issues, disordered eating risk um, that comes into play around everything that you're doing. So the way that you talk about nutrition with the girls, when you're doing body weight measurements, the way that you're doing that, um, just be aware that some players have no issues, but there are a lot of players that still unfortunately have 
issues with eating and, and the way that they perceive their body. Yeah, the, the whole why question is a funny one, isn't it? And I think you touched on it, what I was going to say is because there's a side of it, isn't there, where it's, it's quite encouraging when people are asking questions because you feel like they're actually interested. But also yeah. as a practitioner, I think it's really important that you always have the answer, isn't it? Or you always yeah. have a answer or say that you'll go and find out. Like to yeah. be questioned isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it? Yeah, no, absolutely. They'll ask why, why we're doing it ourselves. Why we're doing a warm up like this. Why we're we doing a recovery like this. Why? Well, I, I always make sure I have an answer. But it's good. A lot of the girls are interested in it, and some of them are also interested going into sports science. Um, a lot of female players do still work uh, or study either at high school or university. So um, I teach at the university I'm at, and some of the players I work with are actually doing the course that I teach. So oh, they're they're interested in it as well. Yeah, in terms of a job career perspective. Brilliant. Jack, would you add anything to that from a um, like a first team perspective in terms of like considerations working with female players? Yeah, I, I, I fully fully support that that sentiment. The the why question. Um, I got caught out from it really when I first came into this environment because usually if a player says, "Why am I doing this?" You're like, well, "Of course you have to do it." <laughs> and it's usually <laughs> like, "I don't want to do it," sort of thing. <laughs> but genuinely, players want to know what why. Why am I doing this? And they 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 they, they want that education, um, and they want to make themselves better, um, which is so refreshing to see. Sometimes I know it sounds daft when you're working with professional athletes most of your life, but it, it's not very often you come across people who actively want to learn about everything that you do, whether that's a lift in the gym, whether that's what you're doing on the pitch, what you're putting into your body. So it's uh, yeah, it was a, it took a bit of getting used to, but it's and it keeps you on your toes. You need to have the answers, like you said, but. Um, they 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 strive to have an understanding of what we're doing. Um, in terms of working in 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 the female environment, it's interesting what George said about the younger age groups and not having that necessarily the S and C um, support that, that they need. That they need. Um, I've actually found the compliance of the the national team probably greater than what I've seen in the men's environment. Um, so I know, obviously, a lot of the top teams in, in the UK, in the, in the men's field, um, they have this perception of being in the gym all the time and lifting heavy weights. But in reality, it's actually quite a battle to get them into the gym to lift. Uh, certainly when you've got a season and you're in a season where you've got games coming thick and fast to actually get gym sessions when you've got midweek games, it's actually very hard to do. Um, so, but I found that this group that I'm working with is actually, the gym compliance is really good. Um, They've all got gym programs that they follow from Clubland um, or from ourselves. And obviously they do it when they're in the national team environment, where they're doing it back in the club is another thing. But no, they, they, uh, I'd say that their actual application and um, engagement with the gym sessions is, is actually quite good. Um, and then, yes, going back to the nutrition side of things, um, in terms of your terminology of how you work around that. And in the men's game as well, we need to be better at that. Like I've been in clubs where we had fat club in the morning mm-hmm. and during pre-season we'd get people on the bike and this was only what five six years ago um and that can't you can't do that but like mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've come to realize with the athletes that I've worked with now that it, just, it sets them up to, to fail and the, the amount of eating disorders that happen on the back of that um and uh problems with body image and then it leads to underfueling and underfueling is a huge problem with football irrespective of whether you've got problems with in the first place but our terminology and our, our understanding and relationship with food has to be better it has to be better not just necessarily with um female athletes but with male athletes as well um 
So we've got a really good setup with Football Australia. We've got um, uh, a nutrition uh, company, uh, Complete Nutrition, who help educate the players and help them get a better understanding of food and take completely off-ball approach to nutrition support to players. And it's, it's, it's effective. It's working really well. Um, you'd have to you'll have to get them on one day they can talk through it in more detail but it's yeah, uh, yeah that's certainly something that that's been flagged uh, working in this environment um but aside from that well, the sport's the sport like there's certain physical benchmarks that you set yourselves um you want to try and attain them um georgia will be able to explain a little bit more on the mental health side of things and and how we manage and, and track that and the research we're going into that um but in terms of how we work on a day-to-day basis, what we do on the pitch, it's the same. We still need to prepare best for the game. We still need to recover when we've got games coming thick and fast. So a lot of that approach is what happens in the men's environment. I think you'll be realising round about now why I wanted you to share it with as many coaches as possible this episode because there's some absolutely quality information in it and some great work being done by Jack and Georgia with the national team over in Australia. But just a very quick heads up, We've had a lot of people joining our community recently, so it's, the community's growing all the time. We're now over 200 practitioners right across the world. We've had coaches from Brazil, Germany, Scotland, Sweden, uh, clubs around England, Norway, Australia, all join within the last couple of weeks. So it's great to see there's some great engagement going on. We talk a lot on the podcast and over on the socials about all the content that we've got available on the community presentations, webinars, Q&As, there's absolutely loads available on there. But also the power is in our members' WhatsApp group. And just a quick note on this, if you are a member of our community and you're not included in our WhatsApp group, then get in touch because you do have access to it once you're a full member of the community. So drop us an email, mail at footballfitfed.com or you can drop us a DM over on social media as well and we will add you in. There's been some incredible conversations on the WhatsApp recently. Um, We did a troubleshooting day um, recently over the last few weeks where people posted a few challenges that they were facing and coaches literally from right across the world were jumping on and giving their advice or experiences. And that's what the community is all about. You've literally got a hub of practitioners from right across the world, different experiences, different levels, working with different teams that you can call upon just on a message and that is the real value in it. So go and check it out. If you've not already claimed your free month on the community, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there. It'll give you one month free on the community. After that, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. You get continued access of everything that's on there. Like I said, you also get access to the WhatsApp group as well. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Jack Sharkey and Georgia Brown. Yeah, Georgia, I definitely want to get into the research in a second. But just before I do, I just wanted to pick you up on, on the point. When you mentioned about like the low training age of players that come in sort of 17s, under 20s, is that more from like, opportunity a lack of opportunity and lack of exposure to maybe an snc program because obviously jack's mentioned there that in terms of um the willingness when they get into that level and actually having that in place it seems like more than the, the men's side so what do you what do you think the reason is behind that like that low training age? yeah i definitely think it's the support 
uh, that they have around them as soon as you get them into a gym they are so eager to learn and they see what the other girls are doing and they oh I want to be able to do that you know can you get me under the bar and can you teach me this and can you spot me here and they are absolutely eager to learn and get a gym program for you but unfortunately they just don't have the support um often the under 17s they're not yet with a team that has a strength and conditioning coach they'll have a physio uh, and then when they get to the under 20s most of them are in our a-league teams which is our uh, professional women's team here and they'll usually have a physio and a strength and conditioning coach or sports scientist so that's for less than half the year and then they leave there and they go into their state-based competitions where they'll have a coach and that whole academy say from under 14s to under 20s they'll have one physio that goes to all their matches but there's no strength and conditioning coach in them so some of them are clever in which they'll keep their program from their a-league and take that into their club um, but there's no one then to progress it, give them different exercises that might be doing the same things for eight months of the year. And, uh, yeah, there's just not the support with them, unfortunately. So I try my best uh, to give programs where I can, but working with the under-20s, it's also a much larger pool of players. We don't often have the same 25 players in and out. We'll have 40 or 50 players that we're looking at and they come in and out uh, before we decide on kind of a more solid team in the um, camp or two before a tournament. It reminds me of that awful picture that came out on Twitter not that long ago. I think it was from the States, maybe basketball was it, where they had the, the men's gym all set up and it was all singing or dancing and the on the women's side it was just a stack of one to ten dumbbells in a little <laughs> space. Like, but that, that's essentially what we're talking about, isn't it? It's, it's opportunity and um, that's what we need to get better at probably right across yeah. the board in different sports and and different, uh, different ages, different levels and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And well, some of the girls are lucky that they're at uh, what's called sports high schools here where they do have strength and conditioning coaches as well. So they're, again, much better off. But you can see the difference as soon as they come into a camp. You can see the difference in their strength. We do performance testing every time and, it, and it's pretty clear to see which ones have that training background and which ones don't. Yeah, 100%. Georgia, the, the research... Uh, let's get into that now. So what was the, initially, what was the reasoning for going into the, the topic that you have? Uh, well, I first started off at, with a completely different topic. We were just going to look at um, fatigue and recovery in football. Uh, being in a national team, we thought it was probably impossible to do any menstrual cycle research because you need long-term tracking. Uh, and as Jack said, they spend the most of their time with their clubs, so you monitor them and get data from them for a few weeks beforehand whilst they're in club and then hopefully they keep complying with monitoring for a few weeks after but uh, not always the case so we started around fatigue and recovery and we're hoping to do one out of maybe five studies on the menstrual cycle and then I kind of kept pushing the menstrual cycle more and more and more and I have three four four male supervisors and one of them just says why don't we do the whole thing on the menstrual cycle? I said, yes, yes, please. <laughs> uh, that took about nine months to get to that point. Uh, and then from there, the studies have changed a bit um, and it was really performance-based and recovery-based. Uh, and then we've changed to performance recovery and then also health. Um, just the research that we've started to do, um, we realised that there's no point tracking changes in phases and performance if they don't actually have a healthy and regular menstrual cycle yet. So um, that whole health component and we're including things like the underfueling and low energy availability um, and that holistic kind of topic, not just performance and menstrual cycle, but 
I guess why I became really interested in doing it was because I've always had friends who you know were talking about it and say oh, I just have really really heavy legs um, when I'm menstruating or I just feel like I can't perform and I was looking up the research and there just wasn't much out there and every time I tell someone about my PhD they kind of go oh surely that's already known surely that's already <laughs> we have research on that you know female 50% of the population and, and sports growing and growing and growing on the women's side but just the fact that there was no real research and no real understanding but a lot of players have this perception and this feeling, um, but it was still unknown. So that's kind of what drove me to choose my topic. Brilliant. And when you're talking about menstrual health, can you sort of define what you mean? Yeah. So menstrual health covers uh, a broad range of things. So things like menstrual conditions, we've got premenstrual uh, syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, and those are things where you have um, severe from PMS to PDMDD, um, changes in mood, things like anxiety and depressive symptoms um, just prior and during menstruation. And this is thought to be because of changes in hormone and the sensitivity to the changes of those. You know, things like polycystic ovary syndrome and endometriosis, which a lot of people are aware of now. Uh, and then you have things like heavy menstrual bleeding or menorrhagia, um, which is um, frequently referred to, um, but then also more commonly are things like extended menstrual cycles, oligomenorrhea, um, and then into primary and secondary amenorrhea, where there's an absence of menstruation. So there's a whole range of conditions. Um, people, there are many athletes with endometriosis and BCOS who are still very successful athletes, but it can be quite debilitating. Um, and our primary concern with the national teams is around that oligomenorrhea and um, primary, secondary amenorrhea, which is often linked to underfueling and low energy availability. So um, women are, I wouldn't say lucky because not everyone loves to have a period, but um, the period is almost like a little key indicator or light switch that if you lose it, uh, it's your indicator to go, oh, something might not be right here. Um, so it's really important um, that you know, players have that education component around their menstrual health and understanding what is healthy, um, what's normal, what's not normal, uh, so that they can, um, as soon as they're going to lose their period, they can kind of go, oh, something's not right. I'm either not eating too much or I'm not sleeping enough or I'm put too much stress in my life and can get yourself uh, back on track because it has so many other effects on your life. Um, that's kind of just the little key indicator, the light bulb, uh, that you can see, but there's a whole range of other health and performance consequences that can come alongside amenorrhea. I think everyone needs to keep an eye on the, the work that you're doing, Georgia. And, and, and <laughs> it's, it's crazy, really, isn't it? When, when George is giving the explanation there and the impact on performance as well, the lack of sort of research that is out there is pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's limited research out there in, a, in an area where you thought there'd be more. Mm. Um, the same with other areas in, in female sport, the, the research is just not there. Like, and the, the quality of the research, if it is there, is, isn't great. Um, even if you look at like, ACL injuries, for instance, there's a, there's a high prominence of ACL injuries in, in female athletes as opposed to men in, uh, male athletes. Um, but the research around it is poor. And you just think that you've got a significant injury here where it sees players out for, for nine months. Surely someone spent a little bit of time figuring out why, what the root cause is, how do we prevent it, but it's not there. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's a number of reasons of why, why that does happen. But, um, 
yeah, just across the spectrum, they're just the, the research in this area is desperate for it at the moment. So to have an organisation within Football Australia where you have embedded within it a, a research and innovation department and PhD students alongside the, the staff, um, it, it's so important, not just for Football Australia, but the, the football community as a whole. Um, so that's one thing we're, we're priding ourselves on and really want to try and push forward um, because if we don't do it, no one else will. So, um, yeah, obviously the work George is doing is fantastic and we just want to try and continue to add to that field and, and take it to where it needs to be. Um, because as George mentioned, the, the sport's only going in one direction. Um, like you've got the World Cup coming up in, in Australia. We've got projected 1.5 million people actually in seats watching a game over 2 billion people will watch the world will the world cup and that's incredible considering what was happening 10 15 years ago um even with the euros over here now with england winning the euros and the participation rates increasing i went to the usa game and you've got almost 80,000 people in the stadium it's it's a huge huge sport now and you look at the research in it not up to scratch yeah. Not nowhere near where it needs to be. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's something we're very proud of the the work that like George is doing and, and others within the organisation, such as you in, and obviously Rob Duffield's involved with the process as well. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, we're, we're, it's something we're very proud of. And George, with the players that you're dealing with in terms of talking around mental health, where would you rank that? Like, where generally, I know you're dealing with a lot of individuals, but where would that sit in terms of it, um, the health of the players? Yeah, so, <clears throat> sorry. At uh, Football Australia, we're lucky that we work with a number of doctors, nutritionists, um, psychologists, wellbeing managers, and uh, in one of our programs called the Future Matildas, which is, uh, during that non-A-League season, that non-professional season, players um, can come into this training program and they get a bit of development both in coaching, but then they also have education modules throughout. So um, things around menstrual cycle and menstrual health are included there. Um, we also have menstrual health screenings and if anything are uh, picked up there, we talk to the players individually, the doctors one-on-one, nutritionists um, and I guess just general conversations with players we try to have as well and try to reduce that stigma and that taboo around the menstrual cycle. Um, It's not something that I talk to players about every day. It doesn't need to be spoken about every single day, but um, making it something that players are happy to come up to and chat to me about so that if they do need help, I can put them in the right direction. Um, A lot of the players now, you know, with the under-20s, we had a camp pretty much every month. Um, so I saw them quite regularly last, oh, sorry, earlier this year. Now, uh, and players will just come up to me and go, oh, I've had to start my period. I'm really worried about this or this. And we can you know, implement strategies that can help overcome um, their concerns, but also from a psychological perspective. Um, a lot of the research that is coming out is really mixed as to whether or not the menstrual cycle has an effect, but it's really strong in the point that females a lot of females do feel that they are affected by their menstrual cycle with most research saying 50 percent or more so if one or two one out of two players in your squad feel like they're affected it needs to be something that can be easily spoken about with players and strategies can be implemented to help them both physically and then also from that psychological perspective just giving them that confidence that you can perform at any time of your cycle Uh, there are gold medals at you know players or athletes have performed their best at all points of their cycle and yeah, just giving them that confidence as well. 
In terms of those strategies, obviously we're getting into World Cup territory here. So if you want to keep this a secret and keep it to yourself, then tell me tell me that to Australia. <laughs> but in terms of those strategies, Georgia, what have been some of the things that you maybe put in place um, that the players that, that have been affected have felt the most benefit from? Yeah, so a lot of the time I get them to talk to our nutritionists um, and try to get it from a nutrition perspective. And then with my background in research and sleep, I'll talk to them from a sleep perspective as well. So if we can get them fueling correctly and recovering correctly, that's often a big part of it. Uh, and then a lot of it, they often feel a lot more sore. So then helping with them some specific recovery strategies as well, just to get on top of it. Um, with our, we have monitoring as well, um, the tracking of the menstrual cycle. So with the under 20s, I said they were in and out of camp pretty much once a month. So menstrual tracking did work for us. It's not going to work for every national team where they only in for a few weeks and then out for a long time. Um, but I mean, I was able to actually monitor the menstrual cycle and a few players ended up having longer cycles or extended or they'd missed their cycle. And straight away, I was able to use that monitoring data, get onto our nutritionists and get them talking to our nutritionists again before our, we had our World Cup last year, before our matches started to help them with that fueling component. Uh, so a big part of it is around nutrition, uh, sleep and recovery, and then just letting them have a chat to you as well and going, no, you can do this. I promise you're going to do well um, and giving them the, that confidence that they, that they need. If anyone's listening, Georgia, that's working with female players and they're thinking, right, we need to, we need to start doing more in terms of monitoring. Um, what would your advice be for them? Because obviously you've got, they might have squads of 15 plus players that they're trying to deal with. And obviously conversations with each individual would be amazing, but we know time can be limited. Like, is there any sort of advice you'd give to anyone in that sort of situation? Uh, so what we did this year was myself and the materials team doctor and then my research supervisor, who's also the research at Football Australia, Rob Duffield, we created a menstrual health screening. Uh, so we created it and we refined it. And at first they were kind of doing it almost every time they were coming into camp. Um, and then we've now decided and refined it uh, that they'll come and do it once every six months. And that'll help to pick up on those players that are reporting a lot of symptoms and within that we also added a question that do you feel your menstrual cycle is affecting your performance or do you feel it's affecting your everyday um, activities of living and training so that, that can help you pick up on those key players who do feel like there's an effect um, which is really helpful if you are in a club-based team um, you don't necessarily have to make every player do the menstrual cycle monitoring so you might only have 30 percent of your squad that feels affected by their cycle Leave the rest of the players, let them do what they need to do. They don't want to talk about their menstrual cycle, that's fine. Help that 30% who really feel affected or who you may be able to see at points of their cycle are affected. Um, there is some research now around phase-based training. I think that is way too difficult to do in a club setting when you have 15 players who are at a different point of their cycle, each player. Um, maybe if you were working with an individual athlete, you could do that, but I think at this stage, your time is probably best invested elsewhere, um, particularly because determining a player's actual phase is really difficult. Um, but also a lot of players are on hormonal contraceptives, so that phase-based training doesn't help them. Uh, and a lot of players have menstrual irregularities, so they don't have a regular cycle. So again, that phase-based training doesn't help them. So whilst the menstrual cycle phase is kind of a, it's a hot topic at the moment, um, if you have a squad of 15, you have five who have a regular menstrual cycle, five who don't have a regular menstrual cycle, and five who are on hormonal contraceptives. Or you could have 10 who are on hormonal contraceptives and five who have a men regular menstrual cycle. So 
the menstrual cycle phase and its effects on performance or recovery uh, is just really one component of the female athletes. There's a whole number, number of players using hormonal contraceptives and all different types of hormonal contraceptives as well. Um, we also don't know what the effects of each of those are on performance or recovery. No, it's great information and great advice for anyone in that sort of situation as well. So I appreciate you going through that. Um, Jack, it's exciting, isn't it? Because obviously with a lot of this research coming out, the, the sort of progression that the women's games made already with all this extra information that hopefully George is going to lead on. Yeah. You expect it to go again, <laughs> don't you? Like this is just only going to help. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, we're very fortunate to have people such as George in the organisation because we'll be at the forefront of it. But yeah, it's um, like, look, don't go wrong. There's still a long way to go with that research side of things, but we're certainly going in the right direction. And yeah, building up to the World Cup, we're hoping that will inspire more and get more people involved. And obviously the research and the participation will all increase with it. And the funding in this uh, this field will increase as well. Um, but yeah, it is an exciting time. Um, obviously, we've got the World Cup in Qatar now, but to have a home World Cup in the women's game, the most popular on on in history, um, it's, you just get excited just thinking about it. It's going to be phenomenal. <laughs> Honestly, it's going to be incredible. And we're what, seven months? Is that right? Seven months yeah, so right now? 25th of July. 25th of July is our first game. Um, so we'll be kicking off the tournament um, against Ireland. So that'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a long process getting prepared for this World Cup. I won't go into too much detail about what we're doing behind the scenes. But um, yeah, this this process has been going on for the best part of 18 months now. Um, and that journey collectively um, to get prepared for the World Cup. But it's, uh, yeah, we've, we've had some setbacks along the way. Don't get me wrong, there's been injuries. Like we mentioned before with ACL injuries, we've been subjected to a few of those on this process. Um, but generally, we've been we're going in the right direction. And um, we've won four games on the spin now. Um, our last camp, which I just got back from two days ago, we had a, a good performance against Sweden, number two in the world, uh, beating them 4-0. And then a good win against Thailand. So we've ended the year in, in a good place, in good spirits. And then obviously we'll take it into, into 2023 and see what happens there. And I know there's, uh, we're not going to get into details on the whole preparation side, but you just mentioned, Jack, obviously a really good point, which I didn't think of. A lot of the players are actually based in the UK, aren't they, at the moment? So they're, they're going to be yeah. making that trip over. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's one thing that's been quite interesting working with the Australian national team because they travel more than any other national team in the world um, because very rarely do you have the majority of the players playing on the opposite side of the world. And Realistically, you want them to be playing in England. You want them to be playing in America. You want them to be playing in Sweden or France because these are the better leagues. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, for each one of our camps, it means they all have to fly back. And that takes its toll on the body. That's a 24-hour a or 24 to 30-hour journey, depending on which route you take. And it takes its toll. So we've had to do a lot of research and uh, look at best strategies around travel and managing travel fatigue and jet lag and how we can overcome that. Um, so for me, that's been an education in itself because when you're playing in England, just traveling around England, you never have to worry about it. So yeah, that's uh, something we've, we've spent a lot of time investing in. Um, but yeah, there's only so much you can do other than actually having to move those camps. So one thing that's happened over this last year, we've had a few camps still based in Europe. So we've reduced that amount of travel. Um, now the simple strategies you can do if, you, if you're doing long haul travel, try and mitigate the effects of, of travel fatigue. 
Um, so you can get like bespoke travel uh, compression leggings uh, to try and minimize that swelling that you get in the legs. Um, try and get your eating schedule in the same timeline as the host country that you're going into and try and get that routine as, uh, in place as soon as possible. Um, then obviously you've got sleeping strategies as well, as well as when you should nap on the flight, when you should be awake. Then when you get into camp, the, the daylight exposure, when you should be getting lots of exposure to light, when you should be keeping it dark, try and get your, um, uh, your cycle in sync or your sleep patterns in sync with where you're going to. Um, so there's a number of strategies we do implement and, and employ individually with each one of these athletes to try and optimize that, that transition. But what's interesting is by the time you've actually got a player into a good cycle, it's time for them to come back and then play again. Um, <laughs> so that's where it comes into our communication with clubs as well. So we've worked quite well with a few of the UK-based clubs in trying to standardise that, that routine of what they do when they come into camp. Um, so say if there's a startup session, can we try to standardise what they're doing when they go into the club land as opposed to when they, as, as the same as when they come into the national team environment? So it's the, it's the same both ends. It's not conflicting. Um, and a, a lot of this as well, it's so important that we have the same message going to players because we'll suggest, right, you need to go to sleep this time, you need to eat this at this point, you need to do this, this, this. If we've got a conflicting message from the club because we've not spoke to them, mm-hmm. the player would be like, right, who do I believe? Do I believe the club or do I believe the national team? Someone's wrong. So it's so important that our messages are, are, are right for the players and consistent. Um, and going back to what Georgia mentioned earlier, it's education is such a big part of, of our role as a national team because it's important that the players know what is good practice, whether that's in the gym, whether they know... Uh, their menstrual cycle and when is optimal performance for them because as George mentioned it differs for everyone um, so you've got to know your normal in that sense um, you have to know what the best strategies are when you're doing long haul travel you need to know your strategies of what to, to eat to recover and stuff like that just everything and that comes down to the player themselves having a good understanding of what what they uh, need to do um, and going back to what we mentioned before about the players asking why 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 it's because they do want to educate themselves they do want to know why uh, they should do the things and, and what is good practice. Um, so that's something we've, we've pride ourselves on and whether that's, there's different ways of doing it. We don't want to make it boring by just sending out infographics all the time. It might be a meeting in camp where we go through certain practices. It might be a video that we send in between um, camps while they're in the club of what they should be doing, say with uh, recovery. Um, so there's different ways you can package it, but education is, is a big part of, part of our work as well. And obviously you're getting a fair amount of opportunities to try these uh, protocols on yourself as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, keep waking up at four o'clock in the morning. I can't get out of the sign. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, yeah. oh, you have to follow your own strategies there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Anyone that sees Jack flying and you need to make sure he's doing everything he's just talked about there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Guys, absolutely brilliant. There's some superb information there. I really appreciate you um, opening up on everything. And Georgia, it sounds like there's some incredible work going on. So um, I was going to ask in terms of people staying up to date with what you've got going on, where would you direct people when the research is coming out? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, My Twitter handle is at Georgia Brown, G-E-O-R-G-I-A-B-R-O-W-N, and then underscore zero two. Um, I'll try post more on Twitter. I'm not great at posting on it at the moment, um, but I'm also on LinkedIn. But I know Georgia Brown is a very common name. So if you can find me, good luck. 
And are you happy for people to reach out? I'm sure on this podcast, there's going to be quite a few people interested and maybe have a few questions. Are you okay with people reaching out? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Perfect. And Jack, you're, you're still at Sharky Stories, one of the great Twitter <laughs> handles going. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I remember, I remember when I went to QPR, um, the media department was like, oh, could we, put, could we want to put a press release? What's your Twitter handle? And I felt so embarrassed. <laughs> so you should be uh, saying that with pride, mate. No, God, I hate it. But it's too late. It's too late. Um, Can't change I, it now. I remember, oh, no. I remember it going on. It even got on the Sky ticker tape. Not my yeah. Twitter handle, but it came out on the Sky ticker. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, still, still sharky stories. <laughs> Love it. Well, listen, thank you very much for you both giving up your time and coming on. There's been some great stuff there and it'll be really interesting to see um, all the all the research and information that comes out going forward as well. And best of luck going into the World Cup next year as well, Jack. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be a good one. Awesome. Georgia, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to episode 215 of the podcast and big, big thank you to both Jack and Georgia for coming on. I'm sure you'll agree there was some incredible information in this one and I did say to both of them after that when this research starts to ramp up and we're discovering more things and more stuff is coming out of the research, we'll definitely get them back on Um, because it'd be great to discuss some of the things they've put in place and obviously post-World Cup and all the rest of it. It'd be great to catch up with them. So go and give them both a follow over on Twitter. Um, Jack, like you mentioned, the quality (laughs) Twitter handle is Sharky Stories. And go and give Georgia a follow at GeorgiaBrown underscore zero two. They're both doing some incredible work and it's great to see. In terms of takeaways on this one... I think Jack obviously underlines the um, how full-on camps are when you're day-to-day with players. Obviously, the, the work that you're doing is getting spread over a number of different days, but when they've got a limited time with players, camps are extremely full-on. They're fitting a lot of stuff into a short amount of time, and obviously a lot of planning goes into that. And I know he joked as well that he sort of wondered what international practitioners practitioners were doing a lot of the time and now he's and now he's living it and realizing how full on it is so um yeah big big respect for the work that they're both doing in terms of the uh, this is something that's come up quite a few times before actually on recent episodes the differing snc experiences and that was something that georgia touched on um and it's something that i know a lot of coaches will experience that you get a group of players and not only will players have different experiences in terms of the exposure that they've had to SNC, but also they might have different experience in terms of the quality that they've had as well so you have to really take that into consideration don't you when you're working with a group of players that there is a lot going on a lot of different experiences and it's really getting to know the players and just on the back of that another big takeaway was and a bit of advice that really stood out was from Georgia and I think this is great for anyone working in the women's game is when we were talking about um, menstrual health and um, we were talking about like monitoring each individual player, her advice was you don't necessarily need to and it's more getting to know your players, getting to know like the players impacted the most and then you can work with those players and suddenly your group comes a lot smaller because some players might not have issues um, whereas others might, might suffer a little bit more. So 
it's it's getting to know your players um, again and and then sort of working out what, who that group is and then you can work out ways of monitoring from there rather than having to deal with the whole group. So some great advice from Georgia on that as well. And like I said at the start and midway through as well, please give this episode a share. I feel like we've covered a really interesting topic, something that like we've touched on has got nowhere near enough research around. It's crazy really with the impact it can have on performance. So this is obviously the start for, for George's work and, and the work that Jack is doing with the team. So please support them, give it a share, share it with anyone working in the women's game. But also like from, from Jack's perspective, um, anyone that's working in international football, which you've had a few people on the podcast from before, but I'm sure there's a lot of practitioners that have players go away on international duty as well. And I think some of the stuff we touched on in this is really important to hear from both sides too. So really appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will speak to you again next week in episode 216.